in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we are going to talk about storm chasers and what they do and the technology they use to do their jobs. And uh, just so you guys know, a couple of things we want to get out of the way. First of all, we're recording this while there's an actual storm going on outside the office. This isn't a joke. Ho- ho- hopefully not a tornado involving storm. Yeah, but we if hope you hear not. some thunder in the background, it's um, atmospheric. Yeah, we didn't actually added in post. It's really happening right now. So just so you guys know that. And the second thing we want to mention is we're going to be talking a lot about storm chasing in general. Uh, this is our warning, which we will be repeating at the end of the episode. Storm chasing is seriously dangerous business. This is not a hobbyist thing. Um, yeah, though some people treat it that way, it is uh, you are putting yourself at serious risk when you are encountering major storm fronts, including but not limited to tornadoes. So we want to get that out of the way. And um, the the people who go about storm chasing are professionals. They are researchers. They have been trained um, and and they do serious work. Uh, It's it's not just all about the thrill. I'm sure that part of it for these people is the thrill. But um, but but uh, uh, the number of tornadoes in the United States has increased since the 1960s. But the number of deaths in the U.S. has declined due right. to these brave people's work. Right. So. We're learning more about these systems and how to predict them. Now, granted, prediction is about all we can do because these are major storm systems that... That we still of, don't understand and they entirely. they have so much energy. I yeah. mean, the energy in these storm systems rivals that of a nuclear bomb. They You're, can they can reach above 300 miles an hour. Yeah, this is this is serious business. So let's talk a little bit about what storm chasers are and what they do. So they do tend to fall into three major categories. You've got your scientific researchers, which I would say are probably the majority of, well, until recently anyway, were the majority of storm chasers. Mm-hmm. These are the men and women who dedicate their their lives to studying storm systems, gathering data, and trying to learn everything we can about them so that our forecast models get more and more precise so that we can increase the levels of safety, not just of where we build things, but how we build them and how to get people out, uh, in out of harm's way. So uh, that's one group. Another group are professionals who are trying to capture video or still images of storms and then sell them to either a news outlet or a magazine or, or television show or just to any other type of customer. So they're trying to turn storm chasing into profit. And then your third category are your thrill seekers mm-hmm. who are treating it like a hobby. They want they want to witness the awesome power of a storm, which can be really amazing to behold, but it is so dangerous. Yeah, uh, I, I would say that really technically most storm chasers fall into all three categories in some way, shape or form. I mean, you know, it's 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 that's true. It's not it like is, it is a business and most of them do <clears throat> take footage while they're in them. Most of them are also doing research and are probably excited about. Right. You've got you've got some hobbyists who are just trying to see a really sure. cool storm. And you've got some companies that are operating tourists where it's actually they're creating a business where they're taking people out on tours to try and see one of these storms. Uh, so there, it's not necessarily that you, you only belong to one category. You might span multiple categories. But that's generally how folks kind of classify them. Uh, now, really, when it comes down to it, we need to talk about what is 
an actual tornado, because that's mainly what storm chasers are concerned with. They also will take a look into huge thunderstorm systems, supercells, things mm-hmm. like that. Uh, they'll also, some storm chasers will uh, have some experience with things like hurricanes, which are different from tornadoes. Uh, yeah, um, it, it is It is kind of um, implied that hurricane chasers are not really storm chasers, because you're not so much chasing a hurricane, you, you know where it is. Yeah. It's pretty obvious. Yeah, yeah. Hurricanes are very different from tornadoes. Tornadoes are, like we said, they are pretty mysterious. We don't understand fully how they form, what it is that's making them form, or why they form in one set of circumstances, but in another set that seems identical, they don't. Right. So that means there's there's probably some other factors there that we just aren't really completely aware of uh, that creates some randomness in this event, which would cause them to form in one case and, another, and not in another. So I guess we need to kind of define what a tornado is. Okay. Well, so it's a it's a swirling mass of air. Yep. Um, it is spawned from a uh, a series of severe thunderstorms called mm-hmm. supercells, mm-hmm. which um, are storm clouds that can reach uh, like six miles up into the atmosphere. Yeah, these are tall, tall cloud systems. Mm-hmm. And um, it has enough energy to create a, a, a cyclone of spinning air. Right. Now, if we want to go into an even more in-depth definition, the Glossary of Meteorology says that it's a violently rotating column of air pendant from a cumuliform cloud or underneath a cumuliform cloud and often but not always visible as a funnel cloud. So literally, in order for a vortex to be classified as a tornado, it must actually be in contact with the ground. Right. And otherwise, the cloud base. otherwise, it is just a funnel. Right. Yeah. So it has to be in contact with the ground. It has to be from the ground all the way up to the cloud base. If it's mm-hmm. not all the way up to the cloud base, it could be what is called a gust nado, or you know, some people call them like you know, even little dust storms. You'll see like a little twisting motion. Sure. Those are not actually tornadoes unless they extend all the way up to the cloud base. So it has to be from the cloud base to the ground for it to actually be a tornado. Now, uh, usually within a tornado, you've got wind shear going on. That's that's winds at different altitudes that are blowing in different directions mm-hmm. um, that, that end up, you know, creating this rotation. Yeah. And the rotation in the northern hemisphere tends to be counterclockwise. Yes. And in the southern hemisphere, it tends to be clockwise. But that's not a hard and fast rule. Right. You the, can actually have the same, both. The same way that, that you can technically in the northern hemisphere see water go down the drain. Yeah, yeah. The Coriolanus effect is one of those things that a lot of people uh, will cite when it comes to this sort of stuff. That really applies to huge bodies, not tiny ones. But in this, it, relatively tiny ones, I should say. <laughs> right. but, it, but in this case, you can actually find storm systems that have both counterclockwise and clockwise moving uh, tornadoes uh, within one system. So it's not like a hard and fast rule. It's just more of a tendency. So um, there's also this thing called a mesocyclone. All right. This is a, a twisting vortex of air that goes through a cloud system. But imagine that it's horizontal. All right. So it doesn't it's not it's not vertical yet. It's so it's a mesocyclone. It's kind of like what a tornado would look like if you put it on its side up in the clouds. OK. All right. And then you get these these wind shear uh, factors, these these sharp moving horizontal uh, winds that can tilt the mesocyclone so that it is upright. And if it does, in fact, go upright and the base of it touches the ground, that's when you get your tornado. And like I said, you can have a very similar set of circumstances that 
in one case spawn a tornado and in another do not. Right, right. Um, what, what, what helps with the tornado is when you get these inflow bands, which are, which are ragged bands of, of cumulus clouds mm-hmm. that, that, um, extend out away, usually to the south or southeast here in the northern hemisphere. Um, and, uh, it, it suggests that the storm is, is gathering low level air from several miles away and, and sucking in that, that hot, moist air that is right. going to be fueling the storm. Right. Now, I've heard another term when it comes to tornadoes, and I wonder if you actually know anything about it, because uh, it, it intrigues me. It tasks me. <laughs> uh, and this is the, the term beaver tail, a beaver's tail. Am I am I crazy or is that associated with tornadoes? No, this is the thing. It's a, okay. it's a, it's a smooth, flat cloud band that, that extends, uh, again, in the northern hemisphere from the from the eastern edge. Of the uh, storm right, right, going right. out to the east or southeast uh-huh. or, or east or northeast. I'm sorry. Um, and uh, it it also just suggests the presence of rotation. Gotcha. Yeah. So so in these storm systems, you have areas where there is precipitation and right. you have areas where there's no precipitation. Uh, I think the beaver's tail is in the no precipitation area. So it's kind of one of the borders of these storm systems. So if right. you see a storm system that has several of these indicators, that's one of those those warning signs to say this is the sort of situation in which tornadoes can form. Right. All of these situations can happen in completely benign, regular old thunderstorms right, that right. nearly terrify your dog. Right. Um, yes. And uh, wall cloud is another one. That's a that's a cloud that seems like it's descending from the bottom of the storm. Right. Um, and those are actually one of the more present. It, that, that's like your 10 to 20 minute warning. Gotcha. If a tornado is going to form there, you've got about 10 to 20 minutes from when that's when that. Ships wow. Up. Yeah, that's that's scary stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when this tornado is forming, you get an updraft. All right. And that updraft starts to pull in low level air from several miles around. I mean, we're talking a huge system here. And that low level air is pulled up through the updraft uh, from the rain area and the rain cooled air is incredibly humid, like you were saying. Uh, that moisture in the rain-cooled air quickly condenses, and uh, that's where you get that wall cloud. And then, you know, you know that there it, the conditions are ripe for a tornado to form. Uh, and then you've got the rear flank downdraft or RFD, and that's so, that's this downward rush of air from from the back end of the storm uh-huh. that's uh, that's descending along with the funnel. Wow. Yeah, so this, this looks like it's a, uh, a bright spot, right? That's what, that's what this usually looks like. It's usually to the rear and in the northern hemisphere, it's the southwest side, which I think actually leads to a, a wives tale. There's an old wives tale that if you were to, if a tornado's approaching and you have a basement, you should go and huddle in the southwest corner. The idea being that that would be the safest way from the, the path of the tornado. But as it turns out, tornado pathways are not nearly so predictable. They, they are very unpredictable, in fact. And, um, and, and also that, that clear spot just doesn't have rain in it. It's yeah. still actually a, a space of extreme wind activity. Right. So, right. and so, uh, yeah, then you've got the funnel itself, um, and which uh, the, the visibility of a tornado will often depend upon how much material is in it. Right. Uh, sometimes if, usually if it's, if it's a little bit of material, that's when it's at its most visible. That's when you can really see the definition of the, the funnel cloud. If it's got um, some dust or something. Right, right. If it's got some debris in there. Uh, when it's got a lot, it makes it hard to see because it just it looks like a mass of darkness coming at you. Uh, by the way, uh, we'll probably have some personal stories that we can relate a little bit because Lauren and I have both experienced 
being through tornadoes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I grew up in northeast Georgia. And I grew up in Ohio. And both areas have uh, have been the site of tornado activity. Granted, not nearly, at least in northeast Georgia, it's not nearly to the same extent as places in the Midwest that are in what is called Tornado Alley. Right. Um, but um, we still get quite a few. Yeah. Uh, speaking of Tornado Alley, the, the United States has, or North America in general, <laughs> Has um has the most tornadoes of any place on the planet. Right. Yeah. Uh, about huge about uh twelve hundred per year. That's a um, lot. And this is because of of what's called a dry line, which is um a center of of cool dry air that is coming off of the deserts to the west mm-hmm. and meeting up with the uh warm wet air from the oceans of the east and causing all kinds of havoc. Right. Right. So you know a lot of people will say that tornadoes are kind of the result of cold Canadian air mixing with the warm, um, moist air of the Caribbean. And then the party gets together and the snowbirds come down and the the crazy steel drums come up. And then we have a big old party in the form of tornado. And uh, any storm institute will tell you that's, that's a that's gross really, oversimplification. That's not really that thing. Tornadoes do occur in other parts of the world. I Absolutely. Mean, you, you find them in, in pretty much everywhere. It's just that um, the frequency is much greater in the United States. Sure. Uh, uh, after the well, U.S. North America, I should say. Yes. After the U.S., uh, Argentina and Bangladesh have the, the next two highest proportions mm-hmm. of tornadoes mm-hmm. per year. But but yeah, they, they happen everywhere. Right. So uh, a lot of the, the conversation we're going to have is, again, I, this comes as a surprise to nobody who's been listening to tech stuff for a long time, going to be very U.S.-centric, but that kind of makes sense because North America does play home to tornadoes I more frequently than we get than a pass in this particular yeah. instance. Yeah, trust us. If you if you live in a place that is very, very infrequently hit by tornadoes, just uh, listen and enjoy as we discuss the terrifying experience that we have gone through as tornadoes have uh, you know, wreaked havoc in our homeland. Um, in fact, I, uh, we can go ahead and say this. We live in Atlanta right now. Um, and Atlanta a few years ago was hit by some, by a, by a pretty massive tornado that did some major damage in downtown. It went right through downtown Atlanta, which is unusual. You don't frequently have tornadoes pass through metropolitan areas. And in fact, there were some theories for a while that the uh, the island effect, the heat island effect of, of cities might have something to do with tornado formation. But uh, it may just be that it's the odds, you know, just one of those things where it's kind of city's up. pretty small. Yeah, There's a lot yeah. of cows. Yeah. When you when you when you're talking about the, the grand scheme of things, mm-hmm. a city is a tiny target yeah. <laughs> when you talk about the entire United States. Um, but, yeah, one went through downtown Atlanta and there for for months, there were major buildings in Atlanta that had. Uh, temporary covers over a lot of windows, like high-rise buildings, skyscraper buildings, had these these temporary covers on their windows because they had to start replacing all of them. Some of which are in buildings that have very um, specific types of surfaces. Like we have one hotel in downtown Atlanta that's essentially a, a, a cylinder. A cylinder. It's gorgeous. Yeah, it's beautiful. But it does mean that replacing the glass is somewhat difficult. Yeah. Uh, and there were entire neighborhoods. East of downtown that were just laid to waste, including some uh, lofts that had just been built. They had been converted from old uh, warehouses and, and old manufacturing Factories, plants. Yeah. yeah. And they had just been converted into <laughs> lofts and then destroyed. Um, they, it's all been rebuilt now, but, it, you know, it can hit major cities. Uh, we wanted to talk a bit about the history 
of storm chasing and just that I've got some about the history of, of weather forecasting in general, just to kind of get an idea of how we've come to the point where we're at now. Yeah. Now, Lauren, the very first date I have is 1849. Do you have anything before that? 1054. What? Yes. That was the first, (laughs) first recorded account of a tornado. It was, um, sure is windy out. There goes Johnny. Was, it's in the village of um, Rosdala, Ireland. Oh, um, sure is windy out. There goes O'Shaughnessy. And um, uh, the, the the account said that it looked like a steeple of fire. Wow, that's poetic. Uh, we usually say that there's a tornado. It's coming at us right now. You hear that train coming coming around the bend? Um, so 1054. Do you have anything else before 1849? No, I do not. Around the smarty pants. <laughs> so in 1849. Professor Joseph Henry of the Smithsonian established a network of weather instruments along telegraph companies. So he he partnered with telegraph companies and helped install these weather instruments at their offices in various places around the United States. Uh, and they, he used maps to coordinate between these these different telegraph companies. And so the observations they sent back, he would end up no, making notes on the map. And then from that, he would start to create weather predictions. Uh, so that's some of the first weather forecasting in the United States beyond just the, my knee is aching, it's going to rain soon. Um, or my dog is freaking out. <laughs> yeah. <That's... laughs> so he, he starts doing this, but there was a little event in the United States that kind of disrupted the whole project. It was called the, the Civil, Civil War. War. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that kind of uh, ended up taking over the telegraph lines for a while. For mysterious reasons. In 1865, however, after the conclusion of the Civil War, uh, Professor Henry then suggested that all meteorological observations reorganize under a single agency as a means of predicting storms and warning coastal shipping. So this was the very beginning of developing a national bureau to Mm -hmm. oversee this and study it and make forecasts. So... 1870 was when the United States formed the Weather Bureau. And that same year, Congress established a National Weather Warning Service under the Secretary of War. Now, this is going to get interesting because this particular office ended up playing hopscotch with the various departments of government. It started off under the Secretary of War, mainly because the military had the most advanced sensors. Well, not really even sensors at this point, but just communication lines. Right. So the military was put in charge of this. And also it was a matter of national security in many cases. So the Secretary of War oversaw this Weather Bureau Department, and the Army Signal Corps assumed responsibility for taking observations at military installations and warning people of storms. Uh, about 20 years later, in 1890, the Weather Service Organic Act transferred the weather reporting services from the Secretary of War to the Department of Agriculture. It would not be the last time that it would jump ship. Meanwhile, in 1874, there's a report of uh, John Muir, crazy person, uh, climbing the top of a hundred-foot-tall Douglas spruce during a fierce windstorm and writing extensively about how really cool it was. Storm chaser. Storm chaser. Early storm chaser. Yeah. Also, in um, in 1884, the, uh, August 28th is the first known photograph of a tornado taken um, specifically in South Dakota. Yeah. Not from the inside. No. 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 Uh, in 1896... That was when the first hurricane warning service was established in the United States. And in 1909, the Weather Bureau began a regular program of balloon upper air observations. So this is sort of the beginning of 
uh, weather balloons. There had been some work with it earlier, but this was the first time that the Bureau itself had started to fund a weather balloon program. And weather balloons are pretty much what they sound like. They are balloons that carry some form of sensor, uh, whether it's uh, just something to measure wind speed or humidity or barometric pressure or whatever, and then send the, either record it and then you retrieve the balloon and see what the recordings were, or if it has some sort of transmitter. More modernly, it will transmit back to a computer. Exactly. Too. Yeah, uh, or at least a radio station. Uh, sure. So you'll get some sort of report back on current atmospheric conditions in, in the upper atmosphere, where you know you can't just go outside and say it's raining. You know, this is more like what what are the directions of uh, of airflow at higher elevations and the temperatures and all of that. Exactly. Uh, in 1928, a Russian meteorologist attached a radio meteorograph to a sounding balloon. Oh, there's some thunder out there. And uh, that was the development of what we consider the modern weather balloon. So the previous weather balloons were kind of early attempts at using balloons to gather more information. But this is when we're actually starting to get uh, information in real time radioed back. Uh, very early on still... And by 1936, that's when the Weather Bureau began operation of weather balloons collecting information such as atmospheric pressure, temperature, humidity, wind direction, and speed. So by 1936, we're starting to get uh, a fairly robust weather reporting system. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1940, the Weather Bureau jumps ship again and becomes part of the Department of Commerce. So uh, once again, playing uh, hopscotch. Which is, uh, which is where it still is today, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although it's not the Weather Bureau anymore. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Right. Uh, also, circa, circa World War II, um, we started to see people flying into hurricanes directly to study them. Yes, we call these crazy people. <laughs> uh, brave people who brave. really were, really were trying to advance science. They, they were not doing this, you know, willy-nilly. This was, wow. There, man, that storm's coming right up on us. Excellent. It's hitting right for us. Uh, it's a tornado. Um, no, it's not. It's just a thunderstorm. The, the 1940s is also when Roger Jensen started to become active. And he, he is one of the people that we refer to as an early storm chaser. Right. I believe he chased his first storm in 1953 with his father. That's the date that I have. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've got, I just have 1940s, uh, was when he started, but it's, that was that was a very general kind of answer from the site I was looking at at sure. the time. Um, so 1953 may be, in fact, more accurate. Mm -hmm. And uh, Roger Jensen was was a turkey processing plant worker and farmer um, who got deeply involved in the storm in the growing storm chasing movement. He was, yeah, really mm -hmm. one of the founders there. Right. Another one being uh, David Hoadley. Right. And you have some information about him, right? Uh, um, I think he began in 1965. Gotcha. Um, and. Uh, Following his his first experience there, he he just chased storms just all the time. Um, yeah, he was from Falls Church, Virginia. Yes, and uh, yeah, he was very much active in that, along with another um, uh, scientist, uh, one of the first storm chasing scientists, Neil Ward. Uh, again, a very early storm chaser. Uh, meanwhile, while all this storm chasing is starting, and it's just the earliest days of storm chasing. Uh, back in 1948, there was an Air Force captain who uh, later became a colonel uh, named Robert Miller and also Major Ernest Fawbush, who were the first on record in the United States to successfully forecast a tornado. Huh. 
They actually forecasted in central Oklahoma. They were observing conditions that were very similar to uh, a tornado that had hit the base four days earlier. And they said, these conditions are ripe for another tornado based on all that information. And so they actually began to discuss with the higher ranked members of the, the base there about whether or not they should take action. Ultimately, they decided that they should prepare for the potential of another tornado. So they acted as if another tornado was going to hit. The next day, another tornado did hit the base. That was two tornadoes that hit the very same base within the span of five days, which was you know, pretty remarkable. I mean, you're talking about, again, a massive area. And for two tornadoes to hit the same place within the span of a week is pretty rare. Uh, but yeah, that was the first successful forecasting of a tornado on record in the United States. Uh, and in 1950, the Weather Bureau revoked a ban on mentioning tornadoes and forecasts. So you might wonder, why was there a ban in place? Why could not weather forecasters say, hey, conditions are ripe for a tornado? Here are the reasons. One, tornadoes at that time in particular were largely mysterious forces that were just kind of considered acts of God, that these were events that would come down, strike with incredible fury. Things that would, say, incite large spread panic. panic. Exactly. The, the, the thought was that you would do more harm than good th- by saying, hey, there may be a tornado on the way because no one knew exactly what they were supposed to do. By 1950, they, the Weather Bureau had decided that this was no longer a responsible course of action and that, in fact, it would revoke that ban. By the way, the ban was not always a formal ban. Sometimes it was just highly discouraged from mentioning that conditions were right for a tornado. But at this point, they said that that was no longer going to be an official policy. Uh, in uh, 1965, you had mentioned uh, that earlier about the storm chasers. That's also the same year when uh, the Weather Bureau changed its uh, – well, there was a reorganization of the Department of Commerce. And so that reorganization ended up creating something called the Environmental Science and Services Administration, or ESA. And uh, that organization changed the Weather Bureau to the National Weather Service, which will sound a lot more familiar, I think, to many of our listeners. Um, and in 1970, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration formed and replaced ESA. So uh, that's also known as NOAA in OAA. Mm-hmm. We got to see uh, the headquarters of NOAA. Yeah. We, we visited Discovery headquarters up in Maryland. And, and they're saw, right down the street. Yeah, we saw NOAA. And then people from NOAA invited us to go and see their stuff and talk to them, which we are totally going to do as soon as we can arrange it. Yes. Because that is mega awesome cool. Really exciting. Yeah. Um, part, part of uh, what Noah was doing in the 1970s was establishing Skywarn, which is a volunteer program that, that currently, certainly at the time it did not have this many, it currently has like 290,000 trained volunteers that's, working across the country in, in a network to, um, to observe and report storms. Yeah, in 1972, you had the first federally funded storm chasing program where before we had storm chasers, but they were all acting more or less on their own. They, they had, you know, no official government backing, uh, at least not from the federal level. And now that had changed. In 1972, you had a federally funded program. Uh, their first sampling of a tornado wouldn't happen until 1973 in Oklahoma, which, as we know, right there in the middle of Tornado Alley. Uh, now, I'm going to skip a whole bunch of years here only to mention one of the most famous programs in storm chasing, which is Vortex. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Vortex is an acronym, of course. It stands for Verification of the Origin of Rotation in Tornadoes Experiment. So the EX in Vortex is from Experiment. That was led by Eric Rasmussen of NOAA's National Severe Storms Laboratory, or NSSL. Um, and hey, I said laboratory instead of laboratory. You did. It, it, I didn't even have to think about it that time. Vortex, by the way, was not the only program called that. There was a second one, Vortex 2, uh, which launched in 2009. But there was an unusually quiet tornado season in 2009, which meant only one tornado was sampled that year. It was sampled in LaGrange, Wyoming. But it was the most intensively observed tornado at that time because there was so much equipment present at that moment. Uh, in 2010, Vortex 2 actually sampled quite a few supercells and a few weak tornadoes as well and gathered a lot of information. Now, during this span of time, there were a lot of other uh Storm chasers that were active. Uh, right. Um, during, during the 1970s, uh, uh, David Hoadley founded Storm Track magazine. It, it was becoming that hobbyist movement that we were talking about a little mm-hmm. bit before. Um, and, and, you know, he was publishing articles in National Geographic and Scientific American. Um, there were programs on the History Channel and ABC. Um, it, it was becoming very much in the public eye, especially with the creation of these government agencies or the recreation of these government agencies. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, some of these agencies, by the way, you know, we talked about it, you know, the 1860s, there were, there was more than a hundred years of information gathered. Uh, and it's interesting that it was kind of a, you know, that chain was never broken. It, it did transform quite a few times. Sure. But they, they remained, like the information itself remained intact. Oh, uh, and it really wasn't until we started getting, um, uh, you know, small commercial or small non-commercial vehicles, um, cars yeah. that people could go out and drive around in to to respond very quickly to the movement of a storm right. and um and furthermore the uh, uh you know communication technology advancing to the point where uh through through radio and and Later. the beginnings of satellite mm-hmm. and cell phones and etc yeah, that we yeah, could yeah. start to be responsive right right in fact we're going to talk some more about that technology the stuff that storm chasers use in order to track storms and to measure their impact we'll also talk about how we classify tornadoes which is an interesting story all on its own but before we get into all of that let's take a quick moment to thank our sponsor audible audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment Audible has over 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash techstuff to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Since we're talking about storms, here's my recommendation for an Audible book that you can get. In fact, if you sign up and you want that free book, this could be your first one. It's the first in a series. It is called Stormfront, and it's the first book in the Dresden Files series that's written by uh, Jim Butcher. Uh, my wife is a huge fan of the series. I am also a fan of the series. It is narrated by James Marsters, who our Buffy fans will recognize as Spoik. Anyway, if you are interested in fantasy and sort of a a, a noir feel and detective fiction, I highly recommend it. Check that out. Remember, just go to audiblepodcast.com slash techstuff to get that free audiobook download of your choice. All right. So back to tornadoes. Let's talk about how we measure how strong a tornado is. It's actually kind of an interesting story. Yeah, there's a scale called the Fujita scale. Yeah, the Fujita Pearson Tornado Scale. Uh, originally, in its in its first format, it ranged from F zero 
up to theoretically F12. F12 would have measured the wind speed at Mach 1, which is the speed of sound. I don't, I, I don't like that idea. That's yeah. <laughs> well, uh, most people would say that, that to really think of, uh, the, the scale in practical terms, you would go from F0 to F6. The idea being that anything over F6 would have probably, uh, we never would see wind speeds at that intensity. Hey, man, don't argue with me, Thunder. I'm just saying what I read. I really hope that's actually coming through on the mic, because if not, we sound we really sound just crazy. Particularly yeah, silly. No, it's OK. There really is thunder out there. You might not hear it, but we do. Anyway, so uh, the, the the scale was proposed back in 1971, and uh, it was proposed by Professor Fujita and Alan Pearson, who was the director of the National Severe Storm Forecast Center at that time. And um, it's kind of a weird scale in a way. Um, it's a scale that determines a tornado's strength based upon the amount of damage it did. Oh, right. And the problem being that um, we've never really been very good at measuring how powerful a tornado is at the time because first of all, they're pretty unpredictable. Second yeah. of all, they happen very quickly and end very quickly. And third of all, they're so powerful that our, the our most sensors... The instrumentation gets pretty banged up. Yeah, it gets it gets janky. Yeah. You don't really end up with like a, a, a working sensor after a tornado has finished playing with it mm-hmm. uh, in many in many cases. So getting a tornado's wind speed while the tornado is actually active is incredibly difficult. Like you said, Lauren, we don't even know where they're going to form or where they're going to go from and to. Uh-huh. Like we don't know what path they'll take. Um, so getting an accurate reading on wind speed while it's happening is really hard to do. Oh, right. And of course, we can tell how fast they're traveling along the ground, how fast sure. the clouds are going right. in relation to the ground due to Doppler radar. Yeah, yeah. We can we can track a tornado and say, all right, the tornado itself traveled at a speed of 16 miles per hour from west to east. Like, but of we course, can say that. But what's we going on within it is yeah, very different. Much more mysterious. So... Uh, Professor Fujita and Alan Pearson came up with a scale where they would look at the damage that was left after a tornado had passed through and said, what speed of wind would be required in order to do this amount of damage? In other words, we were establishing how strong a tornado was after it had already happened uh, by just looking at the devastation that it left. Now, the the early scale was not terribly specific and uh, was... Not really, or maybe I should say not terribly precise. There was an attempt to increase the precision and create the enhanced Fujita Pearson scale. That the, was in 2007? Yeah. February 1st, 2007 was when it was updated. Uh, we call it EF, not just F. So if you ever hear like an F5 uh, tornado, that's really using an outdated format. It's really EF5, what we would say now. And what does that translate to in terms that we mere mortals can understand? Well, first of all, the way they determine the the scale is they look at the type of damage that's done and to the type of uh, structures or uh, landscape that it hits. So to really determine it, they look at, you know, if you say that a building was completely demolished, what was the type of building? Right. You know? how, how was how was it built? How sturdy was it in the first place? Right. What materials went into making it? Exactly, and that and then and there's this really <clears throat> complex fact sheet yeah. that they have ranked out of of different types of buildings. They've and got like twenty eight or twenty nine different designations for the type of building or landscape, and then they and have then a numerical scale for how much damage was done right, to from each one, one to eight. Mm-hmm. Right. So eight being the greatest. So if you had like a concrete steel reinforced building, and the devastation was at eight. That was 
the most unimaginably powerful tornado that could have possibly hit us. Uh, and then here's the thing. There's no upper limit to this scale because there may be tornadoes that can destroy the strongest stuff we build. And since we're basing it on devastation, you can't get more devastating than total loss, right? right. So if you have total loss, you essentially say that was a really powerful tornado. You know, you can't get more specific than that because it could be that it's more powerful than our scale would even indicate. But after you've lost everything, it's kind of a moot point. Oh, right, right. Which is basically what they're saying with a with a EF five would be wind speeds over two hundred miles an hour. Yeah, which yeah, you're getting to a point where strong frame houses could be lifted into the air and carried a considerable distance before it was dropped again. To Oz, for example. Yeah, yeah. So EF zero would be the lowest. That's between 65 and 85 miles per hour winds. Then at EF one, it would be 86 to 110 mile per, miles per hour. Uh, uh, two goes up to 135 right. miles per hour. Three goes up to 165. Four goes up to 200. And then anything over that, yeah, as is, I said. Yeah, is EF5. Mm-hmm. Now, in, in the old scale, you had up to F6, really, was what was being described. And under that old scale, an F6 tornado was called an inconceivable tornado. Was it for reals? Yes. That's amazing. I don't think that tornado means what you think it means. Um but at that point, they said that the wind speeds were unlikely to happen at that intensity. That was described as 319 to 379 miles per hour. I think the highest on record is um, 318, isn't yeah. it? I yeah. believe. Yeah, which is why 319 would be the F6. Mm-hmm. And that the idea here was that uh, you might not even be able to tell that it was an F6 tornado because anything from F5 would leave essentially total devastation in its wake. Right. So. So what's the difference between total devastation and and more total devastation? They said that essentially you would have to verify it by looking at the evidence of the ground swirl pattern left behind. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of crazy. So the point being that it's about the best we can do simply because, again, it's really hard to get a read on a tornado while it's happening. We really can only look at what happened afterward and say, well, based upon this, we deduce the tornado was X strong. Right. You know? Uh, so with that in mind, what is the kind of gear that we use for storm chasing and measuring this kind of stuff? I mean, you've got your basic weather uh, uh, sensors, things like a barometer, which uh, reads barometric pressure. In general, tornadoes form after a drop in air pressure, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a sudden drop followed by a tornado. The drop can actually happen several days before a tornado forms if there's a low pressure system moving in on a broad scale. So it's also very difficult to measure barometric pressure within a tornado because the instruments very rarely survive. However, we will talk about uh, someone who did manage to do that. That'll be toward the end of our podcast. Um, then there's the... Uh, Anemometer, man. Uh, right. Uh, there's there's blade and anemometers and anim- yeah. anemometers and sonic I had to, ones. I had, to, I had to steady myself to say anemometer. <laughs> you did. You did. And you yeah. took a gush of relief <clears throat> yeah. afterwards. Um, and uh, the 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 analog blade ones are. Um, if you've ever seen a uh, like a spoked series of arms or cups perched atop a, a, a single building. cylinder, yeah. that's. That is what. Yeah, it's designed to measure wind speed. So if you've ever seen one of those things, it it looks like it's a little pinwheel type thing, sometimes horizontally aligned with little cups at the end of the arms. It's spinning around in a circle. Uh, This does not tell us anything about wind direction, but it does tell us about wind speed. Essentially, you're talking about how 
quickly is this thing spinning? And from that, we can derive how how fast the wind is blowing. Right. Uh, it only really works if the wind is blowing in a steady direction. If it starts blowing in various directions, it can really mess with mess the readings. Up the, sure. But um, you know that that's how we kind of determine wind speed. Of course, thermometers tell us things about temperature, mm-hmm. uh, and we can learn about humidity through various means. So, getting to the basic gears of storm chasers, a lot of the basic gear is the kind of stuff that you might have it your disposal already. Things like laptop computers. With um, Wi-Fi. Uh, uh, digital cameras. Yeah, video cameras that are both for video or for still photography. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, radios, walkie-talkies, yeah. uh, ham, CB, anything that they can get their hands on. Yeah, to, police uh, scanners, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Stuff that allows them to keep track of the movement of weather systems. Uh, you know, anything that will give them the most up-to-date By data. By immediate communication with anyone who is providing information about that storm. Right. And then, you know, the video cameras are obviously there to document the actual storms, to watch their behavior, to take footage, possibly to sell that footage later on, or maybe it's just so that you can use it for uh, research purposes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be a combination of the two. journalistic purposes. Journalistic even. purposes, mm-hmm. obviously. Yeah. And so those are, those are your basic uh, uh, pieces of equipment. There's some interesting approaches to studying tornadoes, some of which are not necessarily used that frequently today. Uh, did you run into the term tornado photogrammetry? I did not. Photogrammetry is an older form, and we don't tend to use it as much because it's not terribly precise. But it's the use of film or video to determine the speed of movement of some kind of tracer element. So you take a tracer element as a point of reference. This is not necessarily something that you've introduced to the tornado. It may be something that the tornado has already picked up, like, I don't know, a tractor. And it's usually a large piece of debris of a or some sort of persistent element in the cloud itself. And from this, you can start to infer what the wind speed is uh, with varying and sometimes unknown reliability. So you analyze how the wind speed is by measuring the movement of this this persistent element. You know, you're, how frequently is it coming around over and over? And from that, you can sit there and say, well, the wind speed appears to be this. Uh, it was used more in the 1970s and the 1980s, but we kind of replaced this with something that's far more reliable, namely Doppler radar. Uh, in fact, we have Doppler radar that's mobile. It's called Doppler on Wheels. Or D-O-W, DAO. Yeah, DAO. And uh, Doppler on Wheels, those are the main tools used in the effort to determine the strength of tornado winds today. So that raises the question, what is Doppler radar and how does that work? Well, uh, the the Doppler effect we we have talked about on the show before, but um, it is the effect of of electromagnetic waves mm-hmm. crunching up as something moves towards you. Right, right. It's same thing with sound, right? So it's not it's any kind of wave. Uh, if it's moving toward you, the frequency of the wave increases because the object is actually moving uh, toward you. If it's moving away, the frequency decreases. Those waves elongate. So in sound. And for once, it's amazing that we can't hear it because whenever we record tech stuff, there seems to always be uh, sirens going off in the background. Uh, but with sound, like if a, a, a police car has its siren running and it's coming toward you, you might hear a higher pitch. And then after it passes you, it goes to a lower pitch. 
That's an example of the Doppler effect with sound waves. Same thing is true with electromagnetic waves, and radar uses electromagnetic waves to kind of get an idea of where other objects are. It uses radio waves, right? Yep. Um, it's uh, It will shoot a very quick, like, millisecond burst of radio waves. Yeah, called a pulse. Called a pulse out, um, you know, hopefully towards an object. Yep. Or sometimes, yeah, just to see what's out there. Yeah. And, um, and then it will measure the length of time between when uh, it's sent and when an echo comes back. Right. And will also measure the um the the Doppler effect right of the phase waves. the mm-hmm. phase of that of that wave so between the phase of the wave and how long it took for the wave to return back from the echo of the wave to return back it can determine the location and uh, and whether or not something's moving toward it or away from it and and a vague concept of how fast by kind of mathematically computing yeah the if two you together. if you measure between pulses you start to get an idea oh well not only is it moving toward me but it's moving toward me at this general speed. So uh, Doppler on wheels, of course, very useful because that means you can move the, the the radar around so that you can get a better idea of the speed of the storm itself mm-hmm. and even get an idea of the strength of t- the tornado. Right. However, uh, these these vehicles have to stay between two and eight miles away from a tornado to be effective. Right. And it's mostly effective if it's encountering stuff that is fairly large in the in the relative scheme of things. So in other words, uh, if there's precipitation, that's great. That means that there's more stuff for the radar waves to bounce off of. And that could be, uh, if it's larger raindrops, that's even better. If it's hailstones, that's fantastic because that gets a lot more uh, radar. <laughs> for the Doppler. Not, for the not. Doppler. For anyone who's caught underneath it, hailstones are terrible. You do not want to be under them. But for, for the purposes of radar, it works really, really well. And uh, I think the, the strongest wind speed determined from uh, a Dow is, um, at least from the data I was able to find, keep in mind, some of this data is several years old because a lot of it comes from government sources and reports can take a while to, to compile and, and publish, to sure. become publicly available. But the, the strongest I was able to find was 302 miles per hour. So I saw I saw a report of one from Oklahoma in 1999 okay. that um that that recorded the world record speed of 318. Oh okay, so. gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, the, my my latest records are later than your latest records. <laughs> There's a, a specific type of radar that has been used for some storm tracking technology. It's called a Smart R, which is again yet another acronym. Stands for Shared Mobile Atmospheric Research and Teaching Radar. Uh, this is one that is mainly used for research. It's used both for hurricanes and for tornadoes. And um, uh, so, you know, th- this combination of, uh, of technology is used to really get as much information about strength and speed as we possibly can so that we can add to our body of knowledge. Um, and then there's some private chase teams and tours that have marine radars mounted on their vehicles. However... You should know this is decoration. Marine <laughs> radars are useless when it comes to storm chasing and storm tracking. It's promotional purposes only. Wow. They're not used in research. Um, and actually, marine radar signals can interfere with research units like DAOs. So don't do it, storm chasing companies. Don't put marine radar on your trucks and then use them. Yeah, that's pretty silly. There are some projects that have been very interesting, but not very successful. Right. Uh, Toto is one of my favorites. Uh, yes. Toto standing for Totable Tornado Observatory. Now, Toto, of course, is also obviously a reference 
to, to the, the great, Wizard of Oz. That fantastic documentary <laughs> about a tourist from Kansas who visits a, a an exotic land and uh, kills the one of the leaders of that land. Uh, Two of them, actually. Toto was developed by Dr. Alan Bettard and Carl Ramsey in 1979, first deployed by them in 1981. And um, basically, it was an oil drum, of like a 55-gallon oil drum with some stuff in it. Gotcha. With some instruments in it. The idea that a tornado would pick this drum up and we would gather the information from the instruments inside and hopefully the drum would protect the instruments so that the information would be usable. Right. Uh, so uh, how'd that work out? Well, um, it weighed 400 pounds, which is 181 kilograms or so. And so not actually very well. I mean, f- first of all, you know, they were working in the early 1980s when uh, we did not have the kind of communication technology that it would allow people to really effectively chase storms. Right. So right. it was it was it was pretty much a crapshoot of whether or not they would leave this thing in a place that where, would be where likely would, to get picked up. Right. Yeah, keep, um, keep in mind, they don't have the benefit of a laptop with Wi-Fi in 1981. So they have or the even latest. A cell phone. Yeah. Radio. They could have radio. Yes. So they could they could get radio updates. But without the ability to actually track a storm on a computer and see it and be able to anticipate where it's going to move, it made it much more difficult to get to the right place at the right time. Uh, sure. Also, it took 30 seconds to deploy from the back of a, of a specially created truck. Um, yeah. which is, which sounds like a short period of time, but, but that is tremendously long when a tornado is bearing down on you. Yeah. Or if you're anticipating a tornado, keep in mind, we were talking about that wall cloud, which was the indicator that a tornado could touch down within 10 to 20 minutes. If it takes you half an hour to unpack your equipment, just finding out where the tornado might touch down and then getting the equipment out and set on the ground. First of all, it may be too late. It may sure. be that the tornado has touched down while you were trying to get your, your equipment out, in which case you may be in serious danger. Or things, conditions could have changed to the point where the place where you thought was the perfect spot is no long, longer anywhere close to where the tornado may touch down. Mm-hmm. So it was very difficult. Uh, it, as a surprise to no one, it was never really picked up by a tornado. Uh, no, it did. It, a tornado did run over it once in 1985 um, when the NSSL had uh had taken over mm-hmm. for it and um mostly the tornado just knocked it over and damaged the instruments. Yeah. So uh, the, it, the, it served as inspiration for another uh fictional device. Did it? Yes it did. Toto was the inspiration for Dorothy, which was the fictional device in, in the Twister. film Twister. Yeah. So the the movie that made us believe that a cow could be picked up by a tornado and still be perfectly cow like W- willing to moo at any rate. Uh, yeah, and and not turned into hamburger. Um, yeah, it was a uh, uh, Dorothy was the name of the device they wanted to deploy in the film and try and get it in the path of the tornado. It was inspired by the real world uh, analog Toto. In in reality, Toto was uh, was scrapped in 1987. Yeah. Um, but yeah, h- however, there are many other instruments that have been created for similar purposes. Um, uh, one is called a turtle. Yeah. Which this is, uh, are, are kind of hubcap looking little devices that are, they, they were debuted, I believe, in 1986 and, uh, were, were on that beginning edge of, of digital technology. Yeah, they were not meant to be picked up. They were actually designed as heavy, squat, and aerodynamic. The idea being that they could withstand the, the, wind forces of a tornado so that you could retrieve them and find out all the information you needed, things like temperature, pressure, humidity, and not just 
get picked up uh, like the like Toto was. It was just meant to be there so that you could recover it after the tornado had passed through. There are also snails, which are similar in appearance, but are outfitted with these um, seismic sensors. Okay. Uh, because th- there was a, a theory at some point that um, if, if we can study the vibrations that tornadoes create in the ground, that we would be able to learn new fun stuff about them. Huh. Interesting. I had not heard about that. Um, also, dillocams and observation zero, uh, OZs, Oz's. Okay. I just I just got that. I'm so sorry. So Dorothy, Toto, and Oz. Right. Um, which are which are <sighs> camera equipment that that has been designed to be put in the place. Of I totally tornado. forgot to write it down. There's also Munchkins because as it turns out, uh, storm chasers get hungry and occasionally they stop at Dunkin' Donuts and they just order a bunch of those to eat while they're waiting. I just figured that we might as well keep on going down this Wizard of Oz route. So what about armored vehicles? Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. So you're talking about the TIV. Yes. The Tornado Intercept Vehicle. Uh, there's actually been a couple of these. Um, and in fact, their well, Tornado Intercept Vehicle is kind of a generic name at this time, to- at this point. You're really talking about any kind of reinforced vehicle, but specifically, we're talking about essentially, uh, you, you take, you take a pretty heavy vehicle, one that's already pretty rugged, and then you turn it into a reinforced, possibly armor plated, uh, possibly augmented vehicle. Something that looks like it came out of Mad Max. Yeah, yeah. You might be wondering, you know, who rules Barter Town by the time you see one of these things. Uh, they are meant to withstand high wind speeds, hail, uh, massive, massive trauma. They're reinforced, and sometimes they have hydraulic panels that can actually extend down to the sides of the vehicle. The idea being that if you extend the hydraulic panel so that it goes from the ground and and leaves no space under the vehicle, then you can't have wind sweep in underneath the vehicle and and lift it off or push it off uh, its its perch. Right. Um. um so some of them even have uh, stabilizing jacks that will that will extend down and, and into the yeah, ground and itself. stable again stabilize mm-hmm. this so that when heavy wind hits it, it doesn't rock over and and tilt over and fall off. Right. Um. The the TIV two. Uh, specifically was, was, was one that was created that, that weighed about eight tons. Yeah. That's a pretty hefty vehicle. It also usually has, uh, has windows designed so that someone with a camera can get as many different angles as possible. The, the, the original was created by one Sean Casey, who was an IMAX cinematographer. Yeah. Who was working towards some, some documentary pieces. I so. remember seeing bits from that. I never got to see the full, I, I assume they eventually had a f- more, probably more than one documentary, uh, based on this, but I do remember seeing excerpts of this and they were pretty fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also remember, uh, seeing at least one clip where the crew was concerned that his desire to get the best footage was possibly a little reckless. That's probably the best way for me to put it. I, I have no doubt that that, <laughs> that that could be a thing that could have happened. Well, what kind of information have storm chasers gathered. Mainly we're talking about atmospheric conditions, things like the rotation of the clouds, getting more information about that, more information about the actual sequence of events that leads up to tornado formation, the behavior of the tornadoes themselves, the strength of the tornado, uh, the, you know, we've got some information about barometric pressure, some things about temperature, uh, wind speeds and all this kind of stuff, humidity. It's really just trying to get as much data as possible and sift through it to learn 
What is it that really makes these things happen? Oh, right, because some some of the leading theories for a long time had a lot to do with um with temperature differences. Mm-hmm. Right up until we got some data in from tornadoes that said that temperature differences uh, in 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 airflow do not have to exist for a tornado to be created. Right, it doesn't have. That's not not a not a necess- necessary factor. Right, and so you know it's 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 kind of one of those things where the more we learn, the more we realize that we have to learn, and it is so difficult to get good readings. That- yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so dangerous. We're, yeah, we're talking about such huge forces here that getting a good reading is just uh, it, it's risky, and a lot of the stuff we've developed just can't live up, can't hold up to those kind of uh, forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can, as we said, be very financially viable. Um, uh, one Warren Fadley is a kind of rock star storm chaser whose photos of storms can sell for over $10,000 a piece. Yeah, yeah, which has inspired a lot of people to try and follow in his footsteps. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's one of the, the big controversies, and we can go ahead and move into the controversy of storm chasing. One of them is that with documentaries, with reality television, I mean, we do have storm chasers on Discovery. We've got... Or the, we had, I, we I believe had. it was, uh, it was ended in 2011. Yeah. So, uh, but, but there's been some controversy that, that these sort of things have inspired lots and lots of people to either pursue it as a hobby or go into the tourism trade, that sort of stuff. And that, uh, that in itself can add to the already significant danger of storm chasing for research purposes or even as a profession. Especially considering the fact that if you've got, uh, if, if you do have research professionals who are out there trying to be safe and you get in their way, that's, right. that's yeah. bad times for everybody. You can, you can cause traffic jams right when people need to have an open escape route in case the storm changes dramatically. And that can happen. Which storm, can. Storms can travel in one direction and then suddenly veer off. And you need to be nimble enough to be able to respond to that. But if you've got a, a, a line of cars behind you and that's the only way out, then you're kind of stuck. It also means adding the danger of uh, first responders needing to get to locations after a tornado has passed through. So it's one of those things that has raised some concerns because legally speaking, there are no rules or laws regarding storm chasing apart from obeying traffic laws and things like trespassing. Mm-hmm. Like clearly, you, you are not supposed to trespass on people's property. You aren't supposed to uh, uh, you know, drive the wrong way down the street, that kind of stuff. But beyond that, there's not really anything, you know, there's nothing illegal about storm chasing. But there have been some discussions about that. Um, and in 2013, we had a tragedy in which three storm chasers, uh, famous ones, Tim Samaras, Paul Samaras, his son, and Carl Jung, uh, they, they died in, uh, an accident. Uh, they were caught in a tornado near El Reno, Oklahoma. Uh, this was on May 31st and, and they, they had been part of the, um, Discovery Show Storm right. Chasers. Uh, now, full, full, you disclosure, know, yeah. full disclosure. We are, How Stuff Works is a, part a daughter of company of Discovery. Now, we should also say that, that, uh, they were experienced storm chasers and they yeah. were, they were widely regarded as responsible members of the community and they had, uh, provided quite a bit of scientific research. Absolutely. Uh, Tim, in fact, founded Twistex, which, uh, which is similar to Vortex. It's, it's an acronym for the Tactical Weather Instrumented Sampling in Tornadoes Experiment. Yeah. He had an en- engineering background, uh, and he successfully deployed a turtle that recorded the barometric pressure of two different tornadoes. One in 2003 recorded a barometric drop in pressure of 40 millibars. And another one, another probe recorded a 100 millibar drop 
uh, in a violent tornado in South Dakota. Um, later on, other turtles would record more barometric pressure, but he, his was the first one to do that. Wow. So he was really contributing to the scientific knowledge of tornadoes. And so uh, their deaths were very tragic, obviously, and also raised up a conversation about is storm chasing something responsible? Is it okay? Should should there should be, we be looking for other things for right. for, for non human <laughs> endangering ways, ways right. to collect this data? And and you know it's one of those things again where there's there's not been any official movement as far as I'm aware, but uh, uh, people like um, the Kansas Emergency Management Association president Brian Stone said it was worth looking into establishing at least some rules to guide storm chasers, if not formal laws, at least uh, kind of a, a a code, really, that storm chasers need to follow. Now, keep in mind, Tim Samaras and his crew were experts. I mean, they were they were known for being very safety conscious. Mm-hmm. So this really shows how unpredictable these storms can be. Right. And that even if you are at the top of your game and you are very careful tragedy can strike. Yeah, so but supposedly uh, the the storm that that they were killed in killed a, a, another 10 people out in Oklahoma and uh supposedly had one of those very quick turns right. that no one could have predicted that yeah. probably blocked their escape route. And so the National Weather Service does not endorse storm chasing because of the risk involved. However, they do welcome the reports that storm chasers bring in. So it's kind of, you know, it's one of those things where they say, yeah, we can't we can't say go out and be a storm chaser, but we will say that the data we get is invaluable. It, yes, we can't put a, a price tag on that because it's it's helping us understand these systems. And that's really the best way we know of doing it. And uh, through Skywarn, in fact, they will conduct spotter training classes across the United States. If you're if you are very interested in storm chasing, I would recommend not probably going on one of the tours I, I don't think they're necessarily responsible, but, right. um, but yeah, well, uh, you can't, you know, some may be very good at following safety rules and some may be a little more lax in that. It's hard to say. It's hard to say. But but Skywarn will um, will train you up. Right. You, how to yes. do it. you can do it. You can do this in the most responsible and safe way possible, which is that's the best thing. I mean, this is your passion and this is you want to contribute to the scientific knowledge. I mean, I find that admirable. I personally also think it's crazy because I, I've, you know, we'll, we'll, like I said, Lauren and I could talk a little bit about our experience living through tornadoes. Uh, and I would never, ever, ever want to invite that experience on me again if I can avoid it. What, uh, what, what, what did happen? Okay. All right. Well, I can talk about that. So I grew up in uh, northeast Georgia near a city called Gainesville, which actually has a history of tornado, uh, problems. There was a tornado that moved through early in the 20th century and laid the city to waste. I mean, it completely destroyed Gainesville. Uh, my grandfather worked in a textile mill in New Holland, Georgia, which is just outside of Gainesville. And uh, he tells or he told the story. He, he's passed on now, but he told a story about how working in the mill, he w- you know, the tornado was bearing down on the mill and he was moving toward the staircase to get down to a safe level and as he was hitting the staircase, the roof of the building ripped off because of this tornado, the force of this wind. And uh, this was the same tornado that essentially leveled the, the city. Now, when I was growing up, we had several tornadoes pass over the area of town I lived in, which uh, is called Oakwood, Georgia. 
I grew up there and, uh, I can remember like there were, there were houses that were within just a very short walk. Like you just walked up a hill and you could see them that were completely leveled by tornadoes on a couple of occasions. And I mean, I remember huddling with my family at the base of our house, um, you know, not even sure if our house was going to be hit by these things. And, uh, we had tornadoes pass directly over us where, you know, sometimes a tornado will touch down and then lift up and touch down again. In fact, there's even argument about whether or not that counts as two separate it's tornadoes the tornado or, or the same one. Sure. Uh, we've had that happen where a tornado went directly over our house where it lifted wow. up and then set back down a little bit further out. So, um, you know, as a kid, that was a definitely like that was a life defining experience to the point where, I had trouble with storms for a while after I was wow. af- after that. These days, storms don't bother me so much. I can I can handle that just fine. But if it starts turning like ominous, if I start noticing those little warning signs, I take cover because it is serious business. I mean, it is absolutely terrifying to live through. Sure. I yeah. I am um, my my experience is a lot more spotty than that. I I remember being maybe maybe about five years old, and my my mother and um our extremely dedicated uh, black Labrador retriever um herding me down into the basement. And uh, but I think that mostly by the time we got there, like by the time we heard about it and got down there, the radio was all already calling it off. So, wow. yeah. um, and, and this is the, the two, the two types of warnings that you may have heard of and, and had a tiny bit of confusion about because I don't feel like they're very well publicized, the, the differences between them all the time. Uh, a tornado watch is issued by the, um, NOAA, uh, Storm Prediction Center meteorologists and, and they are watching the, um, entire United States all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, a tornado warning, however, is issued by a local NOAA uh, National Weather Service forecast office who is watching your designated area all the time. And uh, the warning indicates that there are spotters who have seen a touchdown and that right. you need to get to safety. Right. Uh, the, the the watch is more that there are conditions that are favorable right. for that a tornado. A tornado could could uh, form under such conditions. Right. Yeah, I've, I've seen so many of both. Um it's one of the one of the the risks of living in in the southeast United States. Not again, not nearly as prone to tornadoes as other parts of the nation, which can get them even more regularly than we do. Uh, and I thought I'd close out. This is something that another storm chaser had said about uh, the situation with with Tim Samaras and his son Paul and and Carl Young. Uh, his name is Rennie Vandewedge. And I apologize if I have uh, butchered that name, but he had this to say, and I thought it was interesting. There's actually quite a bit that he he has written about the storm chasing in general, but I thought this this really bears attention in our podcast. So he said, many storm chasers do a lot of good. Some are researchers trying to understand why some storms produce tornadoes and others do not. Tim Samaras, for example, combined his background in engineering and weather to invent devices for measuring conditions inside a tornado. His research has been valuable. Other researchers use mobile radar units to measure precipitation and wind inside a tornado from close range to gain a better understanding of how tornadoes develop. 
Other chasers are simply out there for the thrill of chasing or to capture video to sell to media outlets. But as tornado video has become plentiful on YouTube and other websites, chasers have had to get closer than ever to get the kind of footage that will earn them a paycheck. They often find themselves in the bear's cage, which is chaser lingo for the part of the storm where a tornado forms. Some have built vehicles to drive directly into a twister. This carries enormous risk. Now, he teaches meteorology and brings students with him on trips where they uh, they observe these storm fronts and, and the weather conditions so that the meteorologists have direct experience with this before they go on to whatever their careers are. But uh, I thought it was really interesting to have a professional opinion added in there because, of course, like we said at the very top of the show, this is, and we've repeated several times, this is serious, dangerous business. Uh, it's not something for just a casual attempt. You know, you definitely want experienced people around you. If you are interested in the field, that's amazing. Uh, but definitely seek out training and make sure that you're following the, the, as, as many safety procedures as you can, because this is, this is deadly stuff. Um, but that that kind of wraps up this discussion. Uh, you know, it's kind of heavy in times, and and obviously, you know, we've had our own personal experiences that kind of make uh, give us our own perspective on that. Color, sure. But but it is a fascinating thing. I mean, you you know, you're this is part of the adventurous spirit of human beings, and the fact that there are people who are willing to put themselves at risk in order to gain more information and is, and also get the knowledge out there about any storms that are developing. Yeah, so this, that people can get to safety. It's one of the reasons why I think humankind is such an amazing amazing species. I mean, we're we're willing to do this sort of stuff for various motivations, but the fact that we are is just phenomenal. So guys, uh I hope you enjoyed this episode of Tech Stuff. If you have any suggestions for future topics or you want to comment, maybe you've lived through a tornado and you want to tell us your story, please do share that story with us. You can email us. Our address is techstuff at discovery.com. Or you can drop us a line on our social media, Facebook and Twitter. You can find us with the handle techstuffhsw. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 